Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, which he was, uh, or while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed, and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seas of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old and well advanced in years, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my master is old, will I now have, the, have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Then the men got up to leave. They, uh, when the men got up to leave, they uh, looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin so grievous, that I will go down and see what they have done is as bad as the outcry they have reached or has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, 
If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ash, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 may be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? He said, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. Let's end the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Lord God, we pray that you would give your servant wisdom and freedom to proclaim your word. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that the words of Christ would dwell in us richly. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Is anything impossible for God? Is anything too difficult for God or too hard for him to do? And I'm sure that as you hear that question, that as you think about that question, is there anything too difficult to, uh, for God to do? I quite honestly doubt that there is a single person in this room who would say, yeah, some things are just too difficult for God to do. That they would say that there are some things beyond God's power and might, but it's one thing to know the right answer It's another thing altogether to live like it is true, that nothing is too difficult for God. That's where the rubber meets the road. Do we live? Do we act? Do we believingly walk knowing that nothing is impossible for God? I remember one of the strangest questions that we uh, had to interact with in seminary, or at least it was a strange question to my mind at the time, was this question, uh, can God create a rock that is so big that he cannot move it? You know, it's one of these questions you think, who thought this up? I mean, who has enough time on their hands that they can sit around and ask these questions, like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? I mean, why would a question like this even matter? And eventually, as we actually discussed the question, it dawned on us that the question was about, uh, or this question about God making and moving a rock had to do with the first question that I just asked. Is there anything too difficult for God? Are there limits to God's working power? And if so, what are they? Is there, in fact, anything our God cannot do? Beloved, that is the question of our text this morning. That is what holds it all together. Our text opens up this morning, and the first thing we see is a man caring for strangers. A man caring for strangers. 
As we come to chapter 18, we find Abraham, and he is again found underneath the oaks of Mamre. Abraham hasn't really been moving around in the land a whole lot. He's sort of settled in at these oak trees at Mamre and has stayed there since back in chapter 13. And this is the place where Abraham has set up an altar and is worshiping his God on a regular basis. And the text gives us this sense about this being the same old Abraham before us. There is a steadfastness and a stableness to him. He is still here worshiping God on a regular basis, dwelling in that same place where he built an altar, faithfully worshiping the living God in this way. And all of a sudden, our text sort of shifts, and out of nowhere appear three men before Abraham. Three flesh and blood people stand before him. And so who are these men, and why have they come to Abraham? For what reason are they here standing nearby? And some have argued that these three are members of the Trinity, that this is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit incarnate. And in fact, in the early church, this was nearly the universal agreement uh, calling this a physical manifestation of the three in one. And there is some warrant to that view. This language is used throughout this text. You'll notice, you know, uh, like in verse seven or 9, where it says, they said to Abraham, almost a plurality of mind, a, a singularness to their thought, and asking questions together. It's also possible, and this is uh, some sort of visible manifestation of one member of the Trinity who brought two angels with him. You'll notice as we get to chapter 19 next week, the two angels go down to Sodom and Gomorrah, and that language is used of them down there. There Angels are there. And after reading the end of chapter 18, we're left with this impression that these two angels were men who were here with the Lord in verse 22, traveling on to Sodom to judge it. And so we know that somehow... In one way or another, either way you go with this, God is standing here before Abraham. And as soon as Abraham sees them, he rises. And the text tells us the language is he ran to greet them. He ran from the tent of his door to meet them. It's very unusual for Abraham to do something like this, to run out and greet them. I mean, it's one thing uh, to, uh, for a young man to do this when he sees his friends coming. It's another altogether for an old man like Abraham. Consider his age. He is 99 years old, running out to greet strangers, ones he's never met before. He is well into his retirement, and yet in the heat of the day, he has risen to greet these strangers at a distance, running to meet them. I mean, just ask yourself, when is the last time you saw someone retirement age or older running to greet anyone, let alone a stranger? It is unusual at best to see it here, but it's the real strangeness in our text is not so much Abraham's age as much as realizing for someone with this status that Abraham has. This is an undignified act. This is looked down upon in that time frame. Abraham is the head of a household. He is a wealthy man. He has become a man of repute by this time in the area he lives in. It is, you know, if for no other reason than for his military victory he had back in Genesis 14, he has at least 300 servants under him. He is almost a king within the land here. This is a great man, a respected man, a commander of an army and stately 
elder, yet he runs out to greet strangers and to care for them. It's a very odd image, yet we see it elsewhere in the scriptures. We see the same thing happen in the story of the prodigal son where the father, this stately elder, a dignified man, he sees his repentant son coming at him from a distance and he lifts up his skirts and runs out to greet this wayward son. That's what Abraham is doing. Abraham is running out from his tent, throwing off all restraint, all conventional wisdom and cultural expectations to meet these ones who are strangers to him. And the question is why? I mean, why do something uh, this unusual? Why act this way? Why run? What is Abraham doing here? Is he running out to get news that is about the land? Is he looking for gossip? What is Abraham's motive that would cause him to go running out to greet them? Very simply, he does it to show the love of God to strangers. Abraham doesn't know who these men are, not yet. It is revealed to him throughout the text. He does not know who they are yet. He doesn't know what they are doing, what their purposes are, but he sets an undignified love upon them anyway. He becomes lavish in his love for these men as he cares for them, as we'll see unfold. You know, as he goes out and he greets them, he bows down before them. This man who could be a king, he addresses them as his lord, suggesting in his words that he is the inferior and they are superior to him. He asks if he might be permitted to serve them. What a humbling scene this is for us. I mean, here here is a man of stature, a great man of the community, respected by all who know him. And here he immediately denies his own rights, claiming that these strangers must be superior to him. Again, this is something we've seen Abraham do before with Lot. When he offered Lot the very choice of the land, as though he were the greater of the two, though he was indeed the lesser. But as he comes to them, humbly bowing to them, he offers, you'll notice, water and bread. He offers them very basic necessities, a place to rest that they may be refreshed from the heat of the day. He offers the basic necessities to make their road more tolerable. But notice, once these strangers agree, notice what Abraham does. Abraham, again, he moves quickly. It characterizes this whole first eight verses. You know, he hurries and runs over to the tent to tell Sarah to bake some bread with fine flour. And then he goes and gets a young calf from the herd and has a young man prepare it quickly. And he gathers milk and curds and offers these things all to his guests. And beloved, very quickly, Abraham has laid not just bread and wine or water before these guests, but a feast indeed has been spread before them. The amount of flour that Abraham commands Sarah to prepare uh, and turn into bread is something like 21 liters of, of flour. Just line up your soda bottles if you need a picture of that. You know, that's 10 two-liter bottles. This is a huge amount of bread being prepared that they would lack nothing. That is the point, so that they have absolutely everything that they need. It is a huge spread that becomes set before them. Instead of offering them water and basic bread, he gives them goat's milk, something designed uh, to help with the digestion, something 
that is prized in the ancient Near East. He is like the prodigal son here, truly, when he prepares the fatted calf for strangers. Abraham is lavishly setting his gifts upon these men. He is not being miserly with what God has given. He isn't hoarding his gifts. He is offering to strangers the very best of what he has, what he himself has been given. And then this great man, he stands off to the side as they eat. As, as they are eating, he is standing there, acting as a waiting servant on these men. This posture of Abraham is striking. He is a great man of status, and he is waiting on tables, waiting on strangers, providing whatever they need. Beloved, this is Christian love at its best. This is hospitality at its finest. You see, Abraham is acting just the way that God has acted towards him. God repeatedly throughout the scriptures shows himself as a God who loves strangers and outsiders. These ones who God has set his love upon, showing them mercy and his own care and hospitality. You know, Jesus dines with Zacchaeus, you know, a great man, right? No, he was a man despised by all. Jesus dined with sinners and with tax collectors, the worst of the worst, the lowest of the low lives. These are strangers and outsiders. Ones who are seen to be unfit for the presence of the godly. But that is the way God works. He openly loves the stranger who enters through the gates. And now Abraham is basically repeating the very action of God himself, doing what God has done for him as a man from the land of Ur, a stranger who came to dwell in a land not his own, whom God has in turn richly blessed. And he shows forth the love of God to the stranger. He is doing what we as Christians are called to do. We who first receive from God and in turn are called to return that love of God by showing kindness to our neighbors, having compassion on the stranger, the outsider, the unlovely, the unwanted. And so often I think we are content to just love those who love us back. It's very easy to have reciprocated love, but God calls us to love those who cannot return the favor to open our home to the stranger, to share what we have in order to display the love of God more fully. And I know, as you read this text, that it does not seem as though these men, as it becomes clear throughout the text, that this is the Lord, are really in need of that. But this is Abraham's first impression of who they are. And yet he lavishes love upon them. He has, according to Hebrews 13, entertained angels unaware that he has done so. And in turn, what we see happen through this engagement, through his care for the strangers, we see strangers caring for Abraham. Strangers caring for Abraham. As you come to verse 9, we see this scene sort of shift. And now we hear these men speak and we learn more about who they are. That up to this point, the text doesn't really tell us anything about them. Other than that Abraham considered great, them greater than uh, himself by calling them Lord, a Lord, as a, a ruler of the land. But now we hear the Lord say and ask, where is Sarah? God knows where Sarah is. But he's showing concern for his child. And at the same time, he's getting her attention. 
And she remains in the tent and now is listening to the conversation as she's heard her name. And God speaks again, fully revealing who he is. He says, God says, I will return to you again this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Notice, God repeats the very words that he spoke to Abraham back in Genesis 17, verse 21. That Sarah would have a son within a year. He repeats this promise, any uh, identity issues before this have clearly gone to the wayside. Only God can make this kind of promise. Only God himself would reaffirm his word that he spoke to them already. That's the way God works all through Abraham's life. We have seen the same promises being repeated again and again. The promise of a seed and an everlasting inheritance for Abraham's children. And he does it again now, reminding Abraham his promise and revealing to Sarah his word spoken. The problem is, the same problem that's been there since the beginning. Sarah is advanced in years and the text tells us the way of women has ceased with her. The text literally reads, Sarah no longer experienced the cycle of women. Sarah has this real life issue and concern and she hears these words from a stranger whom she cannot see, who makes a pronouncement about a woman whom she thinks he does not know. And she laughs to herself. Notice the text doesn't even tell us that it's an audible laugh. She doesn't speak, but she laughs to herself because she just cannot believe, she cannot wrap her mind around what this man is saying is possible. After 90 years of life in this world, most of those years she has spent longing for a son. For 25 years now she has waited for God to give her a child, and now has contented herself with the apparent reality that she will never know the joy or pleasure of holding her own child in her own arms, her own flesh and blood, born of the womb. She has resigned herself finally that there are some things in this life that are just impossible to have. So she laughs to herself at these words of promise. She loses faith in the promises of God, but the Lord hears Sarah's innermost thoughts. He knows her doubts. He, and the Lord then in turn asks Abraham out loud. He says, hey, why did Sarah laugh just now? You know, why did she say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Tell me, Abraham, is anything too difficult for the Lord to do? I will return at the appointed time. And verily, I tell you, Sarah will have a son within a year's time. My promise to you and your household and to Sarah will be proven out because nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing is beyond my ability. And Sarah hears this man speak and she grows afraid by his words. And suddenly she knows who this is, this one who reads her thoughts, her innermost being. And yet she still tries to deny her lack of faith, saying, I did not laugh. God simply says, you did laugh, Sarah. I know you laughed. I know you. I know what you did. I know you lost faith in this promise, but surely, Sarah, the God who can read your thoughts, surely he can open your womb. And he will. It's a gentle rebuke to Sarah. God doesn't pull punches. He tells her what she did in sin and unbelief, yet he restores her through these words of promises, reaffirming the words that were spoken to her. 
And then we see the scene shift again, and the men get up to depart from Abraham's home, and as they depart, Abraham goes out with God. He goes and he leaves with them. And God asks this question kind of uh, out visibly or um, audibly, you know, shall I reveal my plans to Abraham? Shall I reveal to him what I am about to do, that he may know my purpose? Then he says, for I have chosen him, or literally, for I have known him. In other words, shall I tell Abraham what I am about to do because I have an intimate relationship with him? I know him. I am a friend to Abraham. God draws near to Abraham and he lets Abraham know, I am your friend. You have a friend in the most high God. Something scripture picks up later on, calling Abraham God's friend twice, specifically referring to this scene. God is revealing to Abraham not only that he, uh, that he is what he is going to do, but that he is Abraham's friend. He is not some distant God who is far off and never, never land. He is uh, interested intimately in Abraham's life. He is involved in Abraham's life, even sitting down to eat and drink with him. This is so much the case that he's connected and intimately concerned for him, that God is willing to take him into his own counsel and speak with him about his plans that he has for the wicked. And so God reveals to Abraham his, uh, his purpose for coming, first revealing to Abraham and Sarah that they are God's friends, that they have a relationship with him, that there is a fellowship between them, even eating at table with them. And then and that they have this blessing, this blessing of the promised seed. They come and they bear gifts for Abraham and Sarah in this way. But he also comes to judge the wicked. A cry has gone up to the Lord concerning Sodom and Gomorrah. Their sin is great and God has come down to judge for himself and to deal with them accordingly. And as God reveals what he is about to do, what he come, has come to do, we see Abraham deliberating with God. Abraham deliberating with God. And as you come to verse 22, God and Abraham begin to have this conversation. God has basically invited Abraham into his council chamber. You know, when he reveals what he is about to do, he invites Abraham to enter into the discussion. And as the two angels who are with God depart and go down to Sodom, Abraham stands before the Lord. Interesting language. The text tells us basically Abraham is now acting as a mediator. He stands before the Lord and he is standing between two parties. Here is Abraham standing between God and Sodom as an advocate. That is what the language of standing before God tells us. We see it unfold shortly as Abraham persistently petitions the Lord what is Abraham trying to do here? Is he trying to save the wicked men from destruction that they deserve? What is his end game? What is he doing here in this scene? And basically, Abraham is interceding on behalf of the people, just like Moses will do for Israel in Psalm 106. Now here, Abraham speaks for a whole people, asking God one simple question. And this is the beef that Abraham has or the concern he has. Oh God, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
That is who Abraham is concerned for. He has no problem with God's judgment falling upon the unjust. The wicked of the earth shall perish, and Abraham knows this. He wants to know, will God sweep away the righteous and the unrighteous together? Will you, O God, be just in your judgment? That's what Abraham is concerned with, with justice. And so Abraham begins petitioning the Lord, saying, will you destroy the city if there are 50 righteous people there? And God says, I will not if I find 50 righteous And Abraham, humbling himself, petitions the Lord again, saying, What if there are only 45? What then? And God says, I will not destroy it if there are 45 righteous there. And Abraham keeps petitioning the Lord while whittling the number down lower. Six times he petitions the Lord, asking, What about 40? What about 30 or 20 or 10 righteous? Will you destroy it if there are 10 righteous ones found in this city? Each time the Lord replies in his graciousness and in his mercy, I will not if 40 are found or 30 or 20 or even 10. And suddenly Abraham stops asking. And the scene closes and the Lord departs and we're sort of left with the question Abraham never asked hanging in the air. God has never denied mercy to Abraham at this point as he has asked for it. And yet Abraham stops with ten righteous men asking, Will you deliver a multitude of sinners if only ten are found righteous? Which God conceded. Yet he never never dared to ask God the next logical step. Oh God, will you sweep away the wicked? Will you keep the wicked from judgment if there is only one righteous man found? Abraham has stopped his questioning of God. But the question is, is anything too difficult for God? That is what the text centers around. That is the whole text centerpiece, the focus here. Is anything too difficult for God? And the question Abraham never asks is, can God save a multitude of sinners, a whole city, a whole host of sinners, if only one man is found righteous in that place? Is anything too hard for God, O Abraham? Can God do mighty deeds or not? Can he raise a dead man from the grave? Can he breathe life into the death that they may live? Can he, for the sake of one righteous man, deliver many? Is it too hard of a job for God to save a whole people through one man? And beloved, we're given that answer later in the scriptures. Ezekiel 22, verse 30, tells us that God was only ever looking for one man to be righteous. In Ezekiel 22, God looks for one man who might stand in the breach before God for the sake of the land and the people that he might not destroy it. And God gives us one man, one Savior, whose name is Christ Jesus, a man who was born of the seed of Abraham and Sarah. He is a child of a supernatural birth he came so that God would be both just and justifier the one who condemns sin and is just for doing so and is merciful to the repentant beloved nothing is too difficult for God can God build his church as he promised can God work through means 
He has provided. God is a God who will do what he has said he will do. He has demonstrated that again and again, even through the book of Genesis, and he continues to do so through the rest of Scripture. He is a God who keeps his word. He will use weak means of grace to build his kingdom. That is what he was promised he would do to show the, uh, the, to show that the, the, the strong things of the world, the power of the weak, He will bless those who worship him through the word of God accompanied by the Holy Spirit. God will feed us and nourish us through bread and wine when we partake of it. When we pray, he will hear our prayers and will answer them as long as they are in accordance with his revealed will. This is what God has promised he would do. That he would work through word, through sacraments, through prayer. This is God We are talking about here the God who made heaven and earth, this God who raises dead men to life, who puts flesh on an army of dry bones and gives them the breath of life. This is the God of the universe who spoke things into existence, the God who has the power to raise Christ Jesus from the dead in resurrection life. He, this one, this God, he has the power to forgive a multitude of sinners For their sins, clothing them in the righteousness of Christ. That is what God can do. Nothing is too difficult for him. For surely the one who raised Christ Jesus from the dead and clothes us in his righteousness so that we have no spot or blemish before God. Surely this one can do anything he has promised. Whether it is bringing forth a child through the womb of a 90-year-old woman or uh, or be it preventing his church from seeing destruction, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Nothing is too difficult for our God. The question is the same as the beginning. Do we believe it? Do we act in accordance with this? Do we recognize it? Do we pray to God expectantly waiting for his answer? Do we attend upon the means of grace, knowing that in them God has promised to give life? People of God, continue to turn to Christ. Look to him. For him and with him there is rest. There is grace and mercy for the sinners. But for those who are unrepentant, as we will see very shortly, Sodom and Gomorrah, there is justice. There is judgment for those who will not turn. Amen. Let us pray. Our God, we come before you and we praise you that you are a God of mercy and of grace, one who can do far more than we ask or think or imagine. For surely, God, you have declared yourself here in this word. You have shown yourself to be both a God of justice and of mercy. Father, we pray that you would help us to submit to this, that you would help show us Christ, that you would help us see our our ever-present need for him. Continue to grow us in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.